If you have your uh, Bibles with you, and I, I hope that you do, um, go ahead and turn to Romans 11. Um, let me just say that I'm still uh, kind of dealing with the sickness from a little bit ago, and so my ears are still a little messed up, and if I'm really soft, it's because I'm echoing really loudly in my head. Um, and so I'll try to project even more than normally. And if I'm yelling, kind of do this. Um, Chad, I'm going to sign you to that. Um, and then I'll, I'll back off. Or, or you can simmer down now, and I'll simmer down now. Um, so go ahead and turn to Romans 11. And I, I do want to say really quickly that there are a lot of differing opinions on the translation of this text. And we'll spend some time uh, looking at those and then... Um, I'll interject what I kind of feel is the uh, right one. However, I do want to say that at Grace, we definitely want to adhere to the old axiom that uh, in essentials, uh, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. Um, And this text, this issue uh, is certainly non-essential. And so there is room for disagreement on this. However, Actually, so much so that if we start focusing on the, the non-essential part of it, if we make that essential, uh, we're going to miss uh, the beautiful, overarching picture, uh, painting that Paul is giving us here um, in Romans 11. And so with that being said, uh, this is a long text, but go ahead and stand with me anyway. You've just been standing for a while, but we'll do it again. Uh, and It's Romans 11. We'll go uh, verse... 1 through 32. Uh, And as you're reading on the screen, you will notice that there are no verse notations. Um, That is because we are going to read it uh, the way that the early church read it. Uh, And they didn't have chapter markers and verse markers. And so for this time, we won't either. We'll have a block letter. Uh, And starting in verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. But the rest were hardened as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? 
Now I'm speaking to you, Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so the whole lump is. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they did not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that they, that by the mercy shown to you, they may now also receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. You can be seated. I really have to admit to you that I I was, kind of am not really looking forward to preaching uh, this particular text. Um, It's very, very dense, um, grammatically. Uh, especially in the original language, it's very confusing. Um, And on top of that, it's long, really, really long. Um, Still, it's it's so important uh, for us to go through this text because this is it. Paul has begun a a definition of the gospel. In chapter 1 of Romans, verse 16, he says, uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. For salvation to all who believe, the Jew first 
and then to the Greek. And he, he elaborates on this definition for ten and a half chapters. And we are now finally at the end of it. After this in Romans, we're seeing application. Therefore, in light of the mercies of God that I've just taught you about, present your bodies. Um, and David will, will talk about that next week. Uh, but, but this is Paul's last chance to kind of hammer in the doctrinal uh, truth of the gospel. And beyond that, just the, the beauty of the gospel. And I want to convey that to you as well, that, that what Paul is saying throughout the first 10 and a half, 11 chapters of Romans is that the gospel, that salvation is of the Lord. Not of us. Um, It's righteousness through faith. Through the promises of God. Not through works and the law. Um, I I cannot cannot say this enough. Because every day uh, I find myself striving to work for my salvation. Through reading Um, through studying, through trying to know the Greek the best that I can, through trying to come up here and and present and preach sermons, um, preach to the youth sermons that are just full of theological density that leave people yearning for more. And I, I, I find myself doing this not because I love you, which ought to be the reason, but because I'm trying to earn grace. And as I read Romans, I'm, I'm convicted of this. Um, studying is not bad, but we study for the glory of God. We cannot earn salvation. It's not about what we have to do. It's about what he's already, what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And, and Paul is finishing this argument by finishing a clause um, uh, really a tangent that he started all the way back in Romans chapter 9 uh, when he asked this question, um, has God's promise failed? Um, I don't know about you, um, but I, um, I ask this question sometimes. I really do. And I look at the world that we live in today. Um, I hear the staggering numbers. Um, 4.5 billion people who do not know Jesus, um, who if nothing changes will die and spend eternity in hell. Um, 26,000 children who die of starvation or a preventable disease every day. Every day. By the time I finish preaching this sermon, about 20, 20 Christians will be martyred for the faith. 20. And I look at us here in our air conditioning and our padded seats, me with my microphone that doesn't quite match my beard, and and I wonder, like, is, is the promise of God failing in me? Paul asked this question in Romans chapter 9. It's in a different context, but, but it's still the same. And I know that you wonder it. 
I know that every, you struggle with sin and you fight sin and you think you've beat it and then it's back. And it's only been an hour. You wonder, has the promise of God failed? And Paul answers that question with a resounding no. May it never be, by no means. The promises of God have not failed. In fact, they are realized salvation has come. Jesus has come. And if we confess, just confess with our lips and believe in our hearts that he's the son of God, uh, almighty, he was crucified, he was dead, he was buried. God raised him again on the third day. He ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of glory. And one day he's coming to make all things right. We can be saved. We will be saved. Because he promised it. Through the prophet Joel, it shall be in the last days that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Anyone. And, and when you hear that, hopefully, if you're alive, when you hear that, that, that the promise has not failed, that Jesus is still victorious, I, I hope that something in you wells up uh, and all of God's people just... Praise the Lord with resounding symbols like David tells us to in Psalm 148, 149, and 150. He says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. I hope that that happens with you. That all, the people's, uh, all God's people say resoundingly, amen. And then Paul continues on in Romans 9 and he says, and everyone who believes is the one that, um, that God chose from beforehand. And then all of a sudden, you know, reformed guys like me, we say, amen. Um, not quite so reformed people say, huh? Everyone, everyone. Um, and then, then we read that all, all can be saved. That God has hardened natural ethnic Israel so that all can be saved. And, and this leads up to this final chapter um, with the rhetorical question that Paul asks, has God rejected his people, Israel? You may not see it, but it's, it's a rehashing of that same question, has the, God's promises failed? Because for those of us who are not Israel, um, if God has failed Israel, what's there for us? He took us who were never a people and he made us a people. But Israel was always his people. Has God rejected Israel? Um, And I love Paul's response to this. And so uh, it's not going to be up on the screen, but just looking at, at verse, uh, the second half of verse 1, um, I ask, Paul says, then, if God has rejected his people, by no means, he loves that saying. May it never be. Um, and he, he says, for I myself am an Israelite and a descendant of Abraham. 
and of the tribe of Benjamin. Has God rejected Israel? I really hope not. Because I'm Israel. And he hasn't rejected me. And I know this because I'm here preaching the gospel to you. It's actually a really simple um, but really phenomenal argument. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? And I'm going to stop here and ask you that. Because I have to get this in every time I'm up here. Do you remember this story? When was the last time you read your Old Testament? You read this story. Elijah has just killed the prophets, the false prophets of Jezebel. And Jezebel says, by my life, this be done to me and more if I do not kill Elijah. That's in 1 Kings 19. Elijah runs away and he hides in a cave. And he's praying in this cave, Lord, just take my life. And God speaks to him. And Elijah responds to God. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. I alone am left and they seek my life. Do you remember that story? Read your Old Testaments. Read your scriptures. And how God responds to him. I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not been corrupted, who have not worshipped the idols, who have not worshipped Baal. I know what I'm doing. I have my people. I've kept for myself a remnant. Do you remember that? Because we need to. If, if you don't remember that. Or... Even worse, if you have not read that, then you're missing this wonderful truth that comes up over and over again in the, New Test- in the Old Testament, um, as well as the New, that even though God's people are relentlessly, relentlessly unfaithful, God is always faithful. They're not even accidentally unfaithful. Like they didn't trip and fall down in front of this idol. They bowed themselves before and God said, I've saved for myself a remnant. And Paul reminds us that he is not rejected as people. Paul is of Israel. There is a remnant of Israel that remains to this day. And then Paul goes on to say, all Israel will be saved. And the reformed people go, huh? What? All Look, there's a lot to this debate, a lot of discussion within the church about the meaning of this statement. And I want you to remember what we just heard. As we enter into this, I want you to remember this. God's people are relentlessly unfaithful. But God is faithful. Do not get bogged down in this argument, but rather remember the truth that's behind it. God is 
faithful. A lot of this question, all Israel will be saved. Uh, it, it, it stems from uh, two basic questions, two basic premises that are a part of this text. Um, and the, it's really two questions. The first question is, when will all Israel be saved? And who exactly is Israel? Uh, so let's look at verses 25 through 27. And I'm going to interject in here a few things that are um, grammatical issues from the Greek. Um, They help a lot. Um, All right, but uh, 25, 26, 27. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away your sins. There there are really three uh, parties here in this, uh, and and they look at the question, um, and we're going to look at the question: Who exactly is Israel? First, um, they look at this question and they answer it in three different ways. They say Israel here, the first group, um, Israel here is national, ethnic Israel, in its entirety. The second group says that this is spiritual Israel. And they base that on Romans 8 uh, and Romans 4, where God says to Abraham uh, that the promise was not to the physical descendants, but to uh, the spiritual descendants, not descendants of blood, but descendants of the promise. Uh, And so they say this is speaking to all of spiritual Israel, of which converted Gentiles and converted um, Jews are a part. And the third party says this is speaking specifically to ethnic Israel who has been elected, who has been chosen. Um, In other words, the remnant. Um, Based on my rhetorical choices, you probably know which one I think is right, even from there. Um, In in, uh, in public speaking classes, you're kind of always told to present your point last uh, so that it looks like you give fair uh, weight to all the other arguments, and then you come in with the booming weight of your argument, and people are, are just bogged down under the weight of your argument. I'm going to say, I, I really don't, I really don't know, and that's okay. But based on what I do know, I think um, that it is not talking about spiritual Israel, which was the middle choice. Both Converted Gentiles and converted Jews. And the reason is this. It's right here in the text. He says, Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. It's already made an ethnic distinction. Right here in the text. Right before he makes this statement. And he says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. And so, yes, there are other times in Romans, other arguments in Romans where Paul uses Israel, and he's speaking of spiritual Israel, which is the church, 
the believers of both the Old and the New Testament. Uh, But in this case, he's making a very specific distinction. Bear with me, because this is important. Uh, And I think that that distinction rules out spiritual Israel as both converted Gentiles and converted Jews, uh, which leaves two potential categories. Completely ethnic Israel, the entire nation, or the remnant that is ethnic Israel. And the second question, I think, speaks to that. Um, If you look at the beginning of verse 26, um, in the ESV, it says, and in this way. Um, Some of your translations might say thus. Some of your translations might say so. Some of your translations might say then. Um, The ESV translators were not at all impartial in their choosing of this word. Um, The actual word in the Greek um, that that is being discussed here is the word hutos. Uh, There ought to be both an accent and a breath mark over uh, the, we'll call it a U. Um, So it would say hutos. Um, and uh, if you want to practice that quietly to yourself, go ahead. Um, but this is a connecting word uh, that, that means, typically when it's used, therefore or then, except for sometimes it just means then. Um, and when it is used as therefore, it is a logical connector. If A plus B, therefore, C. Logical connector. Sometimes, however, when it's used as then, it's in reference to time. This will happen, this will happen, then this will happen. And now we have to ask the question, which is it? And as you look at this text, uh, you can see why. Because we've either got one of two statements. Israel has fallen so that the Gentiles will come in the fullness. Then all of Israel will be saved. After the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, timeline, then all of Israel will be saved. Or Israel has fallen so that the Gentiles can be saved. And this is the way that God is going to save the remnant of Israel. Um, And that is a sizable difference. And the reason is that if it's after, um, this kind of architects the theology to which, uh, which I will not say outright is wrong. I will say that I join hands with my brothers and sisters who believe this, and I bow down to the overwhelming supremacy of God in all things in my uh, infinite finiteness. When it's then, uh, this is the undergirding for the theology that states, all will be saved who will be saved. And then there will be a time where the gospel goes out explicitly to national Israel and all of those who are under the promise given to Abraham, 
will be saved. Um, If you haven't heard this, you just did. That's okay. It'll come up. If you have, you understand that. Um, However, if it's therefore or in this way, then what it's saying is that right now, the fullness of the Gentiles is being saved. And because of that, the fullness of the Jews are being saved. There's a practical implication to that. Uh, And Paul gives it to us. Uh, In the end of chapter 10, actually, um, he says in chapter 10, verse 19, I... Ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Gentiles, I'm one of you. (laughs) What the Bible is literally saying is that we are saved to make God's national ethnic people jealous. The practical implication is this. Are you living in a manner? Are you receiving the gospel? Are you living out the gospel? Are you enjoying the graces of God and extending the glory of God in such a way that anyone would be jealous, let alone Israel. We have to get through the academic to get there. Are you living the gospel in a way that would make God's people jealous so that they might believe unto salvation? This, by my estimation, is, is a sequential statement, a sequential argument that Paul is making. Um, Israel fell, so Jesus came. And through Jesus, we have salvation. And as the Gentiles enjoy the Messiah, that was promised to the Jews. The Jews become envious. And they turn to Jesus. We have this beautiful picture of God using Israel's disobedience to save the Gentiles and then using the Gentiles to make Israel jealous unto repentance so that all of God's people will be saved, as Joel wrote. So that anyone... Jew or Gentile who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This is difficult. The concepts are grammatically cloudy, dense. However, the application is not. Know the gospel. And live it. 
Paul talks about that for the next few chapters. In this, we get insight into the mystery that Paul Paul talked about in verse 25. I don't know if you've read all of the epistles of Paul, but this guy loves mystery. He's always talking about mystery. He's always talking about the mysteries of the gospel. And when he's not talking about mystery, he's saying things in ways that are mysterious. Um, This guy loves mystery and he loves to talk about the mysterious nature of the gospel and the mysterious ways of God. And what is this mystery that we've just been given insight into? It's just a little bit of God's ways. And all we learn from this is that God's ways are not our ways. If it were my way, it would have been made available from the very beginning to everybody across the entire planet. Um, Maybe cloud messages, I don't really know how, um, but just so that everybody could have access to the promise. But in God's way, he chose Abraham. And he promised Abraham a descendant. Isaac, Jacob, who was Israel, the nation of Israel. These were the people who had access to the promises, the covenants, the blessing, the graces of God. And now, he chooses a church. The fulfillment of Israel. A bunch of us, a bunch of people, who enjoy comfort a lot and who aren't really that bright, even though I try and pretend like I am, and whose passion dwindles every morning for the nations, who are broken, our homes, our hearts, our bodies, broken, or desperately sinful. And he chooses us to make his glory made known throughout the nations. God's ways are not our ways. God's ways are certainly not our ways in the American context uh, that we live in because our ways are very, very individualistic. And if you read Romans 11 carefully, you will see that there is not much room for individualism. Uh, Right before this argument, Paul talks about how God is saving a tree. And for us, we're like, what? A tree? I'm not a tree. You're right. You're not a tree. Um, The reality is that God is saving for himself a people. um, And we love to sing songs that are all about me. And some of them are good. I mean, he took the fall and thought of me above all. We love cheap cliches. If you were the only person on the planet, Jesus would have still died for you. And, And you know what? God loves you. He does. 
and he wants to save you. He does, but, but that's, sometimes it's, if you look at all the books and the bumper stickers, the slogans, the t-shirts, I mean, your best life now, your 40 days of purpose, your doctrine, your church according to your needs and your desires, your own personal Jesus, reach out and touch him. And what Paul is telling us here is that he didn't come for only you or me. He came for his people. He's saving a tree. And if you want to be saved, you need to be grafted into that tree. God's not carrying a tree and some branches in his other hand up to heaven. He's saving a tree. He's saving a body. If you want to be saved, you must become a part of that body. The church, universal. The church, local. You must be a part of that. God is not saving a bunch of individuals. He's saving his church, his bride. What are the implications to that, to being grafted, to being cut off of a a wild olive tree and grafted onto the tree that is being saved, God's groomed tree? Jesus gives us some of those implications in Luke. I'm not going to ask you to turn there. I'm just going to ask you to hear what Jesus says when people ask him about discipleship. This is really funny to me, and, and uh, a guy named David Platt touches on it in his book, Radical. Every time there seem to be large crowds of people who gather around Jesus, he tends to say something that makes them run away. A large group of people is coming. Hey, if you want to be my disciple, hate your family. Up oh, here's another large group, Jesus. Hey, if you want to be my disciple, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Hey, Jesus, I want to be your disciple. My dad just died. Can I go bury him? No, no. Leave the dead to bury themselves and come with me. We make it as simple as praying a prayer. Jesus isn't asking for converts. He's asking for disciples. Jesus doesn't want just branches that know they're on a dying tree and kind of jump off in Jesus' name. He wants branches that will be grafted into the tree that he is saving. So that the whole world will see how glorious he is. God didn't just save Israel. He saved everyone. He grafted people who weren't on Israel into Israel. You know why? Because he's God. And he can do that. That's awesome. It really is. And we ought to live lives that say that. Yeah, I was on a dying tree, but God grafted me into a live one. Awesome. I was a hand dead on the ground. Now I'm in a body and my fingers move. This is awesome stuff. You were dead, but now you're alive. You were grafted into a tree, and and, and I want you to hear that. You were grafted. You did not graft yourself. And now this imagery starts to make sense, what Paul is saying. It's not about works. You were dead. You didn't make yourself alive. It's about grace. You were on another tree. God ripped you off of that tree so that you didn't get burned in the fire. He stuck you onto his tree. And by the Spirit of God, through the blood of Jesus, he made you alive to bear the fruit of that tree. 
you cannot gain salvation. This is the gospel that Paul preaches. This is the gospel that the entire Bible preaches. And I will end on this. The Bible teaches us that there are two mountains. There's one mountain in the Old Testament and one mountain in the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, it's Mount Sinai. And Moses, our great hero in the Old Testament, climbs Mount Sinai. And he comes down with laws. And in the New Testament, we're given Mount Calvary. And our hero climbs Mount Calvary. He doesn't come down with laws. He dies. I am begging you. Do not run to Mount Sinai. Do not run to the law. Run to Jesus, to Calvary, to grace. Let's pray.